Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love domestic history um, and food history and making things historical and otherwise. And we like to start by talking about the things that we've been making or baking recently. So what have you been up to? I did a bake that I'm very proud of today, actually. Oh, a recent bake. Um, I made brownies mm-hmm. with caramelized, not caramelized, crystallized ginger inside and hazelnuts on top. Oh, that sounds delicious. The, the sophisticated brownies. Yeah, those are fancy. Oh, yum. Are they like particularly like a dense brownie? Not really. Like they're they're my standard brownies, just with some handfuls of crystallized ginger in. Okay, that makes sense. I feel like that's a good ginger and chocolate is a good combination. It is, and with the hazelnuts as well. It's just it's because you get that little bit of crunch because they're on top, and like the savouriness. Mixing in with the chocolate and the ginger, it's it's a good time. I can taste this. It's probably going to end up on Patreon. Because <laughs> I, need, I need to share this with people. This is like an, an audiobook of taste. Like, I, I would listen to an audiobook where someone just describes the taste of various delicious things in extreme detail so that you can imagine it. Uh, that's all actually because last week, which is part of why we missed a week, um, I was at a conference, which was fun but not really relevant to the stuff that we do. Mm. And I was very tired because rail strikes interrupted my journey. I mean, it was like a museum conference, right? It was, but it was. I mean, part of it was relevant because a lot of it was about decolonization. So, you know, when we go to Colonialism Corner, then it's relevant. (laughs) But yes, it was very good. And then I was very tired. And my journey there that should have taken three hours took seven. Not even because of rail strikes. That was because of weather. There was a lot of weather. There was. There was enough weather to flood the rail line. Yeah, there were cancellations here as well because there was so much weather. The whole country was just full of weather. (laughs) <laughs> even more so than usual <laughs> um yeah i've i've had a bit of a busy one too um not that much i did make some cheese scones and some soup and they were a good combination what kind of soup um what kind of soup oh it was, it was butternut squash with chili oh um, yeah it was very autumnal and warming and that makes such good soup it does it makes it so creamy oh yeah i'm thinking about making another one now it is soup season it is for a while yet so yeah um that's about it i've been been knitting on my fancy jumper um, which is quite fun, but I now have, it's my first time doing Intarsia, um, which 
if you don't know as a knitting technique um when you want to do use different colors um but it's not like stripes or anything where you can just carry it up it's mm-hmm. you're doing like a patch of color in the middle of your knitting so you need to have like a little extra like a, a tiny little ball of that color sort of dangling off your work yeah I've got about 20 of those <laughs> I think I might have made a mistake I thought I was being clever um but I think it might actually have been easier to do it the way that the pattern told me to um but I should get the same result anyway because are you even crafting if you're not making it more difficult for yourself than it needs to be (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I'll put I'll put a picture of progress on the Twitter because you know it's it's always fun Mm um so what is on the audio menu today um well relevant to the brownies i thought i would talk about ginger excellent because it's the time of year when ginger just shows up in everything you've got pumpkin spice you've got gingerbread it's just it's a good time and it makes me think of winter yeah it's got cozy vibes so, well, firstly, do you know what ginger is? Because I feel like some people maybe don't. It's a, a root, right? Um, it does grow underground. It's a rhizome. Oh, okay. Ah. Which is a science word, which basically means it's more of a stem, but it tends, but they tend to be underground. Okay. So it's not like carrots being kind of the tap root and then the roots come off. It's more of a underground stem. I see. I'm I'm not a botanist, but that is what ages looking up definitions of rhizome has led me to conclude. Is that also what turmeric is? Yes. Okay. Which I believe is related to ginger, actually. Rhizome is a good word. It is, and it's one of those words that starts with RH, which is just not enough of, frankly. <laughs> Come here for your uh, spicy linguistic opinions as well. It's spicy because it's about ginger. Hey. Um, but yeah, we'll probably do a separate episode on turmeric because that's got its own thing as well. Um, but yeah, it is related. It is related to ginger. Um, it technically is a ginger. It's in the ginger family. Um, but if we're looking at what we would consider ginger so the main ones being what we generally just call ginger or edible ginger um, and then there's also galangal or Thai ginger mm-hmm. but it's members of the uh, ah, words so the ginger family is called um Zingaberaceae, I believe is how you say it. Huh? Um, <laughs> which contains about 1,600 species, which is quite cool. Including, wow. yeah, um, what we would consider the standard ginger, which is uh, Zingiber, 
uh, Dalangal, some things that are known as um, Grains of Paradise is a, a, a ginger, technically. Uh, turmeric and cardamom are all oh, no way. gingers, technically. I had no idea ginger was a category. If you haven't had galangal or Thai ginger, by the way, it's very good. It's much more aromatic. It's got kind of a citrusy flavour to it. That sounds lovely. I don't think I have. Well, I probably have, but I didn't realise. Shows a lot. Shows up a lot in uh, Thai, Lao, and Indonesian cuisine. Probably also other places, but those are the main ones that I've seen people talking about it. Ginger was probably domesticated in um, Polynesia, and then spread through trade and travel. Eventually, made its way naturally to mainland Asia, where we get it in. Like I say, um, Vietnam, Laos, and shows up in China a lot. I mean, the sort of the standard, I think, Western view of Chinese food, I think, is soy and ginger. Yeah, it seems to be like a big, a big component of like what we think of as Asian cooking. Mm-hmm. Although we don't know exactly where or when it was domesticated because it's one of those ones that's quite hard to track because it's propagated rather than grown from seeds in general. Oh, so that means that you like slice off a little bit of it and then essentially plant that? Yeah, what you can basically do is buy some ginger root from the supermarket, chop off one of the little lumpy bits, preferably one that has started to like get a little green on the end mm-hmm. and plant that and if you are somewhere warm and damp it will grow a ginger plant oh no way some of which by the way are absolutely gorgeous i mentioned um ornamental ginger which i think is going to be the teaser image for today because i like giving you a challenge sometimes which has these absolutely gorgeous very sort of tendrily flowers which come in white orange yellow and peach depending on the species oh wow i'm looking up ginger plant right now and you're right these are amazing ornamental species generally not considered edible the rhizomes are quite tough okay but they're absolutely beautiful and again if you are somewhere that you can grow them absolutely beautiful it's amazing i've I've just shared a picture with hazel of one i particularly liked which is kind of a peach in color oh yeah the variety is called uh sorung according to the frustrated (laughs) gardener.com that's beautiful i've never seen a ginger flower before i don't I mean, it makes sense that they would have plants that flower, but I've never thought about it before because I suppose being living in a place that traditionally doesn't grow ginger, I, I just have seen that how you get it in the supermarket. Yeah, we we don't really get the 
22 degree average temperature that Ginger apparently prefers. <laughs> the the first written record of Ginger that we know of comes from uh, Confucius, probably around 400 BC. Okay, what does he say about it? Um, that he eats it with every meal and it's delicious. Oh, good for him. Um, there's also a record from 406 from a monk whose name I'm going to mispronounce. Um, Faxian, F-A-X-I-A-N, who said that um, Chinese sailors would apparently use it to prevent scurvy. It is very high in vitamin C, so that makes sense. Um, during the Warring States period. And it was so popular that even though they could grow it, in China, by the Song Dynasty, they were importing a lot of it from further south. Oh, just because of demand? Yeah. Wow. And in the more sort of formal gardens of Imperial China, you did get ornamental species of ginger as well. Mm -hmm. But it keeps spreading. It shows up in Dioscorides and Pliny. Um makes its way to Africa and is actually the uh, ovule, which is kind of the plant version of the ovary, is apparently used for confectionery by the Bantu. Oh, cool. I don't know if that's all of the Bantu because there's like 400 groups who come under Bantu. Um, but the sources I found didn't specify. But I think it's quite cool that people just encounter ginger and go, yes, this is delicious. <laughs> All humans agree. This this little rhizome fella is <laughs> great in everything. All humans also seem to agree ginger, good for stomach. Right. Um... Traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, humoral medicine agree that ginger is a stimulant for the digestive process and is good for nausea, which it actually is, has been proven using modern science that it is good for nausea and you can actually get ginger pills for travel sickness. All right. Oh, yeah. I remember having um, like crystallized ginger in the car for when I would get car sick. Wish we'd had that. I had horrible tasting, really chalky tablets that made me throw up anyway because it was a bad texture for my autistic brain. Oh. Um, I would have much preferred crystallised ginger. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I liked it that much at the time, actually, so it, it wasn't great for my car sickness, but... Maybe um, we needed to swap. May yeah, maybe so. Although I hate swallowing <laughs> tablets too. So, um, but I definitely like having ginger water when it's really hot in the summer. Is less, you know, um, it doesn't make you feel nauseous as much as sometimes drinking lots of water does. Mm. It's interesting you say about during the summer because it's also meant to help reduce bloating according to ayurvedic medicine okay. um and then you get the 
less proven things like um, in various medical systems, it being an aphrodisiac, obviously, because everything is somewhere. <laughs> um, helping with respiratory issues and detoxing, arthritis, a lot of anti-inflammatory things, which, again, it does have to some extent. Okay. And that's one thing you get with turmeric a lot, actually, is it being used as an anti-inflammatory, which, as we now know, is a ginger. Mm. Um, I know some people use turmeric to deal with um, arthritis and hemorrhoids and things like that. Yeah, I've also heard it's a remedy for um, like toothaches. Mm. People just love ginger. It sounds like a pretty helpful little plant. Um, so yeah, we know by 150 AD it was being produced in quite large amounts in Sri Lanka. And actually India is the leader in uh, ginger production. About 43% of the world's ginger comes from India as of 2020. Oh, wow, that's quite a lot. It's also still grown quite a lot in China and in Nigeria, actually. So, again, it's it spreads everywhere. Everyone loves ginger. Everyone who can grow ginger does. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, I kind of, kind of wish I could grow it now, but we've just I got too much weather. In a greenhouse, I'm sure there are people in Britain who grow it in a greenhouse. Yeah, actually, you probably could, but you'd have to keep it. Would you have to sort of keep it moist in there? Yeah. So yeah, it was spread to Europe through Rome, who had a lot of contact with. Obviously, North Africa and West Asia, mm -hmm. and then the it continued to spread when the Roman Empire fell, and the Ottomans rose, and the whole um, Silk Road really took off. Uh, it kind of died off a little bit in popularity in the Middle Ages because it became quite expensive. I'm seeing I see a lot of things that do not source this um but I, I tracked it down to an article by Barbara Pickersgill which says that a pound of ginger cost as much as a sheep in 14th century England I was not expecting that and a pound is not a lot of ginger um no I suppose not was that 16 ounces yeah like, you don't need a lot of ginger to make things taste good. But when, when you think that we're probably talking ginger root as opposed to ground ginger, that's quite a lot of... That's quite a lot of value. Well, to, yeah, to I mean... A few handfuls of ginger. <laughs> I guess this is the heyday of sheep being valuable as well. Yeah. Uh, people imported it preserved a lot, especially, like you got pickled ginger. Mm-hmm. Delicious. And, yeah, like I say, humoral medicine 
also very into ginger as a hot ingredient. Ah, that makes sense. And people finding different ways to eat it. We have ginger tea coming into prominence. We have ginger biscuits being served, especially among the upper class who can afford sugar. Ah, yes. I love a ginger nut. And we have candied ginger. Mm. Or crystallised ginger, as it's, off, as it's also known, which, again, is one of these things everyone who has ginger and has sugar is just like, what if we'd combined them into just a fun little snack? I like how much of food culture is, what if this was sweet? I mean, it makes sense, I think. Like, humans like sugar and we like sweet. Mm-hmm. Possibly from an evolutionary thing. Because it's more nutrient-dense. The, that nutrient is mostly sugar, but the, you need those calories. I just like the idea of people going, I like the taste of this thing. What if I try putting sugar on it? (laughs) For just everything. (laughs) Um, But yeah, crystallised ginger actually goes back to at least the Ming Dynasty. Um, The Ming Emperor, what I have found doesn't specify which... Um, apparently liked crystallised ginger so much that he it was one of the first instances of by royal appointment he had his ginger guy (laughs) and there's these absolutely spectacular Ming era jars used for storing and transporting ginger that's absolutely beautiful you can definitely imagine an emperor using them oh wow so it's there's some that are um you get ginger jars up to the 19th century as well which have quite i would say east asian inspired designs which i mean we've talked before about victorians and their their relationship with East Asian culture, um, appreciation, appropriation, <laughs> some mix of the two. There is nothing the Victorians would not exoticize. Mm. Um, there is actually a ginger festival in Tokyo in September. Oh. The um, Sugar Matsuri, the ginger root festival. Where people sell, people sell fresh ginger roots with claims like it will protect you against evil, <laughs> um, and it will protect you from colds. Which again, it does have vitamin C. That makes it sound like it's doing some kind of epic quest, though. The ginger is going on an adventure <laughs> through your immune system. Just, yeah, through your body, just beating up germs 
can we um add that to our dream bread and thread road trip oh absolutely um so ginger being used as a medicine still in the 18th century because then we get a record from yorkshire from thomas spratt in 1702 of brewing beer with ginger instead of hops um in a paper about the royal society so ginger beer may well be a yorkshire invention <laughs> i bet you enjoyed that i don't even like ginger beer <laughs> which you know is obviously just because it's from yorkshire you know i just reject it <laughs> exactly Um, but ginger beer is apparently very popular in uh, southern and eastern Africa. The brand called Stony, sold by Coca-Cola, is very popular. It's also a lot lower in alcohol than regular beer is. You probably see a lot of things like Fentimans is non-alcoholic ginger beer. Yeah, I know you can get, like alcoholic and non-alcoholic versions yeah and ginger wine which is lovely although some of the modern non-alcoholic ones are actually produced with pressurized carbon dioxide rather than brewing oh which feels like cheating to me oh so like just like a ginger gingery syrup and then just carbonating it basically yeah I mean, I guess that... Like it, I feel like at that point, calling it beer is cheating. You should have to call it ginger pop. Yeah, just like a ginger soda. Um, and obviously ginger beer ends up in the dark and stormy cocktail, where you add rum, which brings me to Jamaica ginger. Ah. Which is unrelated to Jamaica ginger cake. It is? Um, so Jamaica ginger cake is a cake made with a quite spicy variety of ginger, very popular in Jamaica. Okay. And you can get it in a lot of places in Britain now as well because of um, because of immigration. But Jamaica ginger was actually a remedy, a patent medicine in the 1860s, um, especially for, again, upper respiratory stuff. So we're going back to the Ayurvedic use of it for res mm. respiratory issues. Um, indigestion, general intestinal complaints. Um, also often known as Jake which was apparently 70 to 80% ethanol by weight. Oh my goodness. <laughs> which made it very popular during Prohibition. Oh, yes. That rings a bell because I've just read Water for Elephants and there's a whole thing about Jake Leg. Yes. Jake Leg being you have had so much ethanol that your limbs become paralysed. 
which uh, isn't great. Um, Overdrinking is a problem, and it was even more of a problem during Prohibition because everything was less controlled. And especially because people like Harry Gross of Hub decided to use different ingredients that were cheaper, such as um, triorthocresyl phosphate, which is an ingredient in lacquer. He was told it's non-toxic, but it's actually a neurotoxin. Oh no. So that the the Jake leg became a lot more common because it wasn't just the people who were drinking to excess at that point. Because presumably anyone who drinks that is gonna be having a bad time. Yeah, somewhere between thirty and fifty thousand people were either temporarily or permanently affected by it. Oh my god. The more I hear about prohibition, just the wilder it is that that level yeah. of mistake happens. Yeah, you mentioned it in Water for Elephants. It also shows up in the Black Dahlia. I think someone dies after drinking Jake. Okay. Um, but they, they don't do that anymore. And now Ginger is back to just... Here's a delicious rhizome, let's put it in a tea, let's put it in some biscuits. I'm glad Ginger is back in its due place. Um, but it is also still one of the most common things for herbal medicine, like I mentioned, the um, antiemetics, mm-hmm. which is... It's still a little bit controversial, but there have been some studies, like I say, that have shown it does work at the very least for reducing nausea, if nothing else. Um, interesting, though, it does introduce, it does interact with some prescription medicines, which is interesting, like warfarin, hmm. um, which is a blood thinner that a lot of, especially older people, end up needing to take. Ah, okay, so you. Is it like in large quantity or do you just have to stop eating ginger altogether? Um, it's it's if you have a significant quantity. Okay. Um, but the, the main medical use for ginger I can find now is for travel sickness and also for morning sickness. A lot of people mm-hmm. use it for that because it's obviously it's not a drug so they're, they're less worried about it affecting the fetus. Yeah. So that is that is my brief history of ginger, which is delicious, and I'm going to eat some more of when we finish recording. That's fantastic. I had no idea it was... It did so many things. I want to do some ginger baking as well now. <laughs> do it. <laughs> do some see, see if I can find my crystallised ginger cookie recipe. Yeah, I was thinking some biscuits with stem ginger or some shortbread. Oh, yes. Or, so a, or, a, or a whiskey mac. 
What? Why not a, a dark and stormy? Ah, why not? I've never had one. It's one of Nick's favourites. Okay, it it does sound like rum and ginger are a good match. I'll have to try that. So what is today's local ladder? Uh, so it doesn't involve ginger, I'm afraid. Although I'm sure... We, we need to coordinate better. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we need to compare notes. Um, but it is sort of related. I mean... If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's related to the time of year, so I'm on some kind of theme. Um, I would like to talk about the toffee apple, or the candy apple, if you prefer. Uh, So it's around around the time of year that uh, bonfire night is happening in the UK. Um, now I am from Sussex where bonfire night is a two month long affair Um, (laughs) (laughs) well it's got to stave off the Christmas creep yes (laughs) and I didn't realise this was unusual until I lived I I moved out of Sussex and there was only one bonfire night each year and I was like what is going on (laughs) um I actually don't know why it's so big in Sussex, um, but I don't know. We we just like causing chaos, I guess. Um, <laughs> so one thing that is a bonfire note as well, actually, I realised when I then uh, lived outside the UK trying to explain bonfire night to somebody from a different country, I... It is actually quite a weird holiday. Like, you're explaining what the origin of of, of Bonfire Night and you just kind of realise halfway through, like, actually, this is a very strange thing to celebrate. Yeah, um, like, I've, I've now realised that, you know, we have many listeners who are not in the UK, so a, an attempt to explain Bonfire Night, we got a new king who was even more anti-Catholic than Elizabeth I, which takes some doing, quite frankly. Um, Catholics didn't like this and decided to blow him up when he opened Parliament. This may or may not have been a sting operation, but that's by the by, because the point is, they got caught, and now we celebrate with fireworks? Yeah. (laughs) At this point, it has been... Over 400 years, because that would have been, I think, 1601, 1602, that kind of time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a while. Uh, we're still doing it. It was originally mandated uh, by the government that you had to celebrate them not being blown up. But um, over the years, it's I feel like it's sort of morphed a bit more into uh, next time we won't fail. <laughs> maybe you should take warning yeah i've definitely seen some people basically saying this may be illegal to say now given the most recent laws um but people basically saying what if we tried again yeah it's the whole thing has become a little bit more um like slightly 
keeping government on its toes, I guess. Like the, the religious aspect is completely out of the window. We don't care about Catholics versus Protestants anymore unless yeah, from like it's... Northern Ireland or Glasgow, I guess. Um <laughs> it's it's more just people going, Hey, they failed to blow up Parliament, but what if? <laughs> Because that's the thing, like, it wasn't about blowing up Parliament, it's just that that's where the king was. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, it's quite, it's it's a very funny sort of niche uh, local celebration, I guess. But um, it's it's kind of come to the point where, so there used to be a guy, Guy Fawkes, um, like a um, an effigy of this guy who tried to blow up Parliament. Um, that would be burned and they still do that in some places but a lot of the time there's they also make effigies of um like whoever's unpopular <laughs> or, um like it a lot of the time it's um politicians um that end up in the fire so yeah which it's, feels it's, true to the history of the day it does. i feel like viva vendetta did have uh a big hand in making it a bit more spicy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there's there's fireworks, there's bonfires, there's parades, um, and there's toffee apples. Usually. Uh, so if you've not had the pleasure of a toffee apple, it's it's just an apple covered in toffee. Um which you might doesn't sound particularly revolutionary, but in terms of getting a kid to eat an apple, uh, it works. <laughs> I can confirm. And also keeping the child occupied for a while because of the toffee layer. Oh yeah, they're quite difficult to eat. Like they're just being the whole thing is just shoved on a stick. So it's it's usually fine until you start getting down to the core. And then it has a tendency to like fall off if you bite in the wrong place. But you know, it's an adventure. It sure is. <laughs> I do happen to love a toffee apple. Uh, now, when I say toffee, I mean the hard toffee rather than the soft kind of caramelly toffee. Okay, this so, is firmly like a Werther's level sweet. Yeah, it's it's crunchy. Not the same flavour, but yeah. <laughs> um. So no scale. <laughs> when you make the toffee, which is basically just sugar, um, like boiled, you have to boil it to the hard crack stage, uh, which is about 155 degrees centigrade. Um, you need to use like a sugar thermometer. And then you can dip the apples in and put them to cool and, and whack a stick in it. Um, this only works with apples that do not have the wax coating that they sometimes put on in supermarkets. If you try to make toffee apples with apples that haven't had the wax coating removed, it will just slide off and you'll have a very sad pile of toffee and an apple that's still just an apple. 
I've made toffee apples a couple times, not for a long time, but um, it's, it's, it's quite fun. Um, so would recommend. I will link to a recipe on the Twitter if you want to have a go. Um, so there is, there's a few sort of versions of the beginning of the toffee apple. Um, and also uh, in North America, the candy apple, which is bright red, um, that one has um, quite a, a pinpointed story to it, uh, which is that in uh, which is that they are credited to one particular confectioner um, who was actually not intending to make toffee apples or candy apples. Um, he was he'd made this new candy that he wanted to sell that was cinnamon flavored. Um, and it was like a, a Christmas kind of promotion. This was in uh, New Jersey in 1908. And he decided to make a window display to launch this new candy. And he dipped apples into it uh, and hung them in the window, just as like a creative window display. Um, and people started coming in wanting to buy these candy apples rather than just the actual candy um, and he realised he was onto a pretty good trick and started making them to sell um, and, and apparently they caught on from there and became like quite popular at the circus and also at Halloween apparently they're quite associated with Halloween in North America So um, are candy apples still cinnamon flavoured then? I don't know I have not had an American style candy apple. If if you are American or if our Canadian listener um also has them, do let us know cuz like I've most of the ones I've seen in Britain are red, so now I'm curious if there is a a difference at all or if it's just the same thing. Um yeah, I don't know if the them being bright red thing is a thing that um like started in America and then kind of came over back sort of to to the UK. Um because I've seen like varying ones. Um the red ones and sort of the traditional um just normal brown toffee ones. So uh, yeah, I don't know. There's chocolate ones as well. Yes, yeah, you can get all sorts. You can get like soft toffee, you can get uh, chocolate with like sprinkles on, like lots of different versions, which in my book is excellent uh, because the more fun apple and a stick based treats, the better. Yeah, so that's uh, that was um, William B. Kolb, uh, sorry, William W. Kolb, by the way. Um, is the the guy that was credited with inventing the candy apple. Um, however, fruit in sugar, syrup or honey, um, has been a really popular dessert all the way back, pretty much. Um, so 
the idea of having like an apple on a stick and dipped in toffee um is was kind of already happening in in the 19th century um and there is a picture uh of a bunch of kids with their toffee apples, which I, I really enjoy. <laughs> which I'm going to send to you. Oh, they're having a great time. Like, they are all having such a good time and appear to be attempting to get the entire apple in their mouth. <laughs> As is traditional. Um, so it's kind of unclear when this first started to happen, but they they seem to become like a fairly recognizable treat in the 19th century. Um, uh, so we have this from the Yorkshire Evening Post in July 1896. Toffee apples are the latest luxury of London youth. They are said to consist of sour apples dipped in toffee. And the mixture of bitter and sweet is declared to be toothsome to a high degree. Well, there you go. If it's toothsome. <laughs> uh, high praise. <laughs> Everybody loves a toothsome apple. So. Yeah, it's um, a relatively simple treat that remains popular um i think probably partly due to like nostalgia factor um but they are also just like a very a very winter kind of thing um i remember the the one november when i had braces i couldn't eat healthy apples i was so upset genuinely oh, no. <laughs> yeah i can't imagine Attempting that with braces, not a good idea. Um, <laughs> but again, the idea of fruit in, you know, sugar being popular and particularly the combination of apple and toffee, caramel as well, is, is quite popular worldwide. Uh, so I am just going to leave you with the recipe uh, for well, the, the concept uh, of Chinese apple fritters, or the, the kind of Chinese version of toffee apple, uh, which probably came first, um, but is basically apple fritters, um, which I've, I've had, um, you know, the traditional British version is like apple slices covered in batter and then deep fried. Mm -hmm. uh, so Chinese apple fritters are covered in the crunchy toffee um, and then sprinkled with sesame seeds, Ooh. which does look absolutely delicious. And apparently um, you eat them with ice cream, uh, which sounds great. So I think I did find a recipe for that, but I can't find it right now, but I will try and pop it up on the Twitter. So if you are interested in recipes such as ginger hazelnut brownies, we are on Patreon as Bread and Thread, where you can also get access to a Discord server where we talk about things we have made, things we have cooked, and just generally natter.
It is truly an online knitting circle. <laughs> um, the uh, our words. Uh, we also have a uh, uh we have thing. <laughs> Sorry, you can do it. We are also on Twitter at Bread and Thread. Um, who knows for how much longer? <laughs> <laughs> where you can find um teasers for upcoming episodes and uh news uh, about the podcast and pictures that we talk about on the podcast um and something i think is interesting also bread and thread on tumblr uh where you can find much the same um and on youtube where we have audio uh audio versions of the podcast video versions of the audio podcast we have the same sound but on youtube yes <laughs> which we have got a little bit behind on posting because of various life things but trying to catch up on doing that um you... also catching up on transcribing we're getting there and you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com um, if you have any toffee apple or ginger related stories uh, or anything you would like to see us cover on the podcast. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>